الحمد لله الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد وبالإسناد المتصل منا الإمام مسلم قال حدثنا قتيبة بن سعيد قال حدثنا ليس قال حدثنا ليث عن سعيد بن أبي سعيد عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ما من الأنبياء من نبي إلا قد أعطي من الآيات ما مثله آمن عليه البشر وإنما كان الذي أوتيت وحيا أوحى الله إلي فأرجو أن أكون أكثرهم فأرجو أن أكون أكثرهم تابعا يوم القيامة وقال الله تبارك وتعالى ولقد يسرنا القرآن للذكر فهل من مدكر My dear respected brothers and sisters Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah on this Sunday evening May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you the barakah for coming out on this nice warm Sunday one of the firsts of the year and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this a means of our closeness to him the hadith that I've just transmitted to you, it's a hadith in which uh, it's a very interesting chain to start with. First and foremost, Imam Muslim relates this from his teacher Qutaybat ibn Sa'id. Qutaybat ibn Sa'id. Qutaybat ibn Sa'id then relates it from Layth, who then relates from Sa'id ibn Abi Sa'id, who relates from Abu Huraira. So it looks like there's a lot of Sa'ada in this narration. Lots of Saeeds here. Any Saeeds here? I see a few. MashaAllah. So, he relates from Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said the following. Now, listen to this carefully because this is the crux of what we're going to speak about today. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, مَا مِن نَبِيٍ مِنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَمَا مِنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ مِنَ نَبِيٍ إِلَّا قَدْ عُقْتِيَ مِنَ الْآيَاتِ مَا مِثْلُهُ آمَنَ عَلَيْهِ الْبَشَرِ When you look at the other Prophets, they, every single one, every single prophet was given a particular type of uh, a sign, a miracle, something inimitable, some, uh, something extraordinary that rendered the norms uh, and it was considered extraordinary. Those were the things that assisted them in proving their claim to prophecy. And then people accepted that because they saw this was, um, th this was uh, extraordinary. They believed in the, the sign and thus people became believers of that particular prophet. So that's what the Prophet speaks about with regards to the rest of the prophets. Then he continues and then he says, What I have been given, what I have been given is a revelation. I've been given a wahi and a revelation which was inspired to me or revealed to me and فَأَرْجُوا أَنْ أَكُونَ أَكْثَرُهُمْ أَرْجُوا أَنْ أَكُونَ أَكْثَرُهُمْ تَابِعًا يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ And I hope, and my desire is that I will be, I will be the one on the Day of Judgment with the, with the largest number of followers. So now he's saying that the largest number of followers is linked to his miracle, which he sets out to be distinguished and different from the other Prophet's miracles. Now, if you were to look at the miracles of the other prophets, 
when you compare the miracle of the Quran to the miracle of the staff of Musa salam. The staff of Musa salam was such that you had to be there to see it, to see it in action. Otherwise, it's just a hikaya. All you're knowing, all you, all we know about it. Otherwise, is what's revealed about it. Otherwise, we never saw it in action. We never saw the incident took place, take place. Likewise, with all the other, with all the others as well, it's very similar. The Sulaiman and his miracles. We don't see it today. They were temporary. They were. They occurred at a particular time. Many of these. Many of these miracles also occurred with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You look at Isa alayhi salam, Jesus peace be upon him, same kind of thing. He, he could say, Bismillah, blown to a bird made out of clay, it would become alive and fly away. He could cure the leper, which was an, an impossible thing to do once your skin and your flesh is all kind of, uh, all kind of withered and, and, uh, and been reduced to nothing and you're down to the bone. And that, that's what you call a leper. He was able to cure the lepers. However, again, you had to cite that from your basara. You had to cite that from your sight. Your external sight had to take that in. And that had to be an external kind of experience, which then you would process internally. The Prophet ﷺ spoke about that. He spoke about those, but then he distinguished himself by saying that, I have been given a revelation. I have been given a wahi. And that wahi is something. And then he says, therefore, fa fa'akuna. Therefore, I hope to have the greatest number of following on the Day of Judgment. Now, that's a, that is a very big challenge or a claim or a hope or a desire. But that's what the Prophet said in this hadith of Sahih Muslim. Now, if you look at the world today and you look at the world since the time of Rasulullah there's always been more Christians. Well, it, today there's definitely more Christians than there are Muslims. In a time, and they also had many, many years before the Prophet ﷺ came to have had many following, a greater following. So Christians have been a, a large proportion throughout. They've lived on. This is just one example. You've got, you've got people who are Jews. You've got people of other faiths and so on. But if you look at the largest kind of represented majority of any prophet, it's of Jesus. Yes, we understand it's, uh, it's changed, etc., etc., all the rest of it. But those who claim to who claimed to follow Jesus, peace be upon him. Now though, when the Prophet ﷺ is saying this, something definitely is going to have to happen. Where the Prophet ﷺ will be left with the greatest number of followers. Whether that means in serious followers, or whether that is quantitative. We leave that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's not what we're speaking about today. Today, the point is that somebody can question, how is the Quran then a living miracle? Now since many of you are probably students, because this is the end of... Uh, kind of uh, end of session program, as I, as I was told, I'm sure you understand a bit, about, a bit about Arabic. So I will be invoking some of these things. So inshallah, uh, you, you'll be able to follow along. We're trying to understand today, how is the Quran a miracle? Now this can be argued on many fronts. And I'm just going to try to take a few things today. I don't, I don't claim to be exhaust, uh, exhaustive in my research or in my presentation in the few minutes that we've been given. We have a very short amount of time. We're going to look at the fact, and I'm going to claim today, that the Quran is a miracle on many fronts. The language that the Quran was revealed in, the language that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used and chose to translate and compose His eternal speech, which is without letter, word, sound or language that has existed with Him eternally. This is theological discussion. But the, but, but the language He chose to have, his, have this final message descend to mankind and then endure for many thousands of years inshallah that language was Arabic and then the Arabic that he chose and he composed this Quran in is 
inimitable. And the Quran itself gives that challenge. So first and foremost, the language itself, the choice of that language, then that language to have endured is a miracle. I will, I will, I will expound on this a bit, a bit more later. Number two, it's composition. It's rhapsody, it's style, it's nazam, the way it's composed together, the, the, the way the words have been linked together, the choice of the word, the usage of that particular language then is another miracle. Because that's something again we will expound on. Number three, I would then say that it's script. It's script is special. I may not say miracle here, but it's special because it wasn't done by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It was composed by Uthman radiallahu anhu, the Uthmanic script, the way we have it. Number four, it's pronunciation. It's pronunciation, the way it's, it's articulated. That's another miracle because we articulate it today as we have articulated it for 1400 years. And subhanAllah, the reading that we just had, really, I thought, subhanAllah, that's such a beautiful reading. Now, I, don't, I, I didn't see who was reading, but whoever it was didn't sound like an Arab. Uh, sorry, um, uh, could pass as an Arab, right? Could pass as an Arab. Sorry if I offended you with that slip. So, um, could definitely pass an Arab, and there, there's reasons for that, which inshallah I'll explain as well. Then, number five, its preservation is a miracle. So, it's a miracle in terms of its preservation, and how everything has been facilitated in terms of having it preserved in the various different ways of preservation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made that a miracle as well. And then, number six, Maybe the last point that I'm going to talk about today or try to speak about today, but definitely not the last because there are many other aspects, is its revelations and discoveries. What it, what it, uh, what it expounds, what it reveals, the, these revelations, that's another miracle which day by day new things are coming up. But again, that's something that many people uh, know about. Let's take the first point, the language of the Arabic language. Now. In the recent times, there's been a lot of exposition on the Arabic language and the beauty of it, etc., etc. What I'm going to focus on today is first and foremost, what we know is that the Arabic that the Quran is composed in is a very much a living language. Of course, the Quran and its own composition is a divine composition, which is unmatched, unparalleled, it's inimitable, meaning it's the Quran itself gives a challenge. Ten surahs, bring ten surahs like it, bring one surah like it, bring an ayah, you know, bring, bring something like it that you can, that, that, that could match it. Many attempts have been made in the past, but unfortunately nothing paralleled it. And its influence was, its influence was great, which we'll speak about in the, in, in the second point. The other thing is that the meaning of each word of the Quran, nothing is archaic. Yes, some words may not be used as often today as they were then, but they are still living words that we know about where it's documented as to their meaning. You don't have to speculate on their meaning in the sense that it's been documented since the earliest times. Now this is where I get a bit technical. So bear with me. What I want to speak about is that when you look at Hebrew, for example, Hebrew was pretty much a dead language until the state of Israel was born. And then they revived the language. In fact, the Bible, uh, the, the original evangel rather, that was, uh, th that was originally in Aramaic, which is a dialect of the, uh, which is a Hebrew dialect. Nobody speaks that today. When you look at the, the earliest versions of the Bible today, you have Latin. So Latin and Hebrew, these are some of the earliest languages that they have with, for these other scriptures, which unfortunately are not living languages anymore in the way that they were then. And thus, there's, also, when it comes to lexicography, philology, and in terms of composing lughat, which means dictionaries, 
dictionaries to uh, try to, uh, to to try to understand and exp uh, expound on the, the 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 words and their usages and uh, and lexicons etc. This is something relatively recent when it comes to uh, these other languages. Arabic. I mean, l let me explain to you that in terms of the published works that we have, you know, forget about works that are not extant, which these published works took from. They are very early. For example, if you look at Sahih al-Bukhari, on many occasions, Kitab al-Tafsir, uh, Imam Bukhari will quote from Ibn, uh, Ibn Abbas that such and such a word means such and such. Generally, these expo expositions are only given, these definitions are only provided for those words which are difficult to understand. Otherwise, what's the point of it? Or if they're homonyms where they could mean more than one, one thing, and then uh, Ibn Abbas's perspective is given, or some other Sahabi. Likewise, when you look at uh, the Tafsir of Tabari, he has chains that, uh, uh, he has Isnad, chains that reach back to the Sahaba in explaining what these words mean. So it's a very much old, uh, it's a very much preserved language from a point of historicity. So even the meanings of each word are there. Then when you go into the published works on philology and uh, lexicography, in terms of lexicons and so on, we, we start, I mean, today you can, you can have, uh, you, you can read Al-Ain, which is one of the earliest works that are still available today. Al-Ain of Khalil ibn Ahmad al-Farahidi al-Basri, the Basan scholar, Khalil ibn Ahmad, the famous grammarian. He died in 170 Hijri. His book called Al-Ain is available today, published. You can, you can buy a copy, you can read a copy even online. Number two, you have Al-Jim. Al-Jim, which is Abu Amr Shuja al-Shaybani. He's a Mawla of Shaybani. He, he's, uh, uh, he died in 206. Again, his book is available today for you, for you, to, for you to read. There's a number of them. I'm just going to quickly go through them. You have Al-Azmina wa Talbiyatul Jahiliya, Muhammad Al-Qutrub. Again, 206 Hijri. Then you have this amazing book, which is called Al-Sha'. What is Al-Sha'? What does Sha'a mean? What is Asha'un? Asha'un. Asha'u. Sorry? It's the plural of. It's a plural. Sha'atun. It's a plural of Sha'atun. So what is it now? Sha'atun is sheep. So Asha' is sheep. This is uh, by none other than the great scholar, one of my favorite, Al Asma'i. Abu Sa'id Abdul Malik ibn Qurayb al-Asma'i who died in 216 Hijri. He writes a whole book where he discusses about 70 different terms that they use for the sheep in Arabic. That's early on. He decided to compose this. He's actually one of the original codifiers of, the Arabic, uh, of, the Arab, of Arabic lexicography. And that's not the only book. He wrote uh, the book on the faras, on, uh, on the horse, and a number of other subjects. Now, this is initially they weren't full dictionaries, starting from alif ba ta tha. They actually were on different subjects, just discussing the words for a particular item or a uh, or, or an animal or something of that nature. Now, obviously, that must have been important for him to have done this. Following him in 224 Hijri, there's the famous scholar Abu Ubaid al Qasim ibn Salam, great scholar of Baghdad. He's originally Hirawi. Right, and he's from Al Baghdad. He wrote a silah, a weapons. So that must have been a whole exposition on, on weapons. He also has Al Gharib Al Musannaf and Gharib Al Hadith. That's three books on lexicography that early on. Then following him, you have Al Kanzul Lughawi Fil Lisan Al Arabi. Al Kanzul Lughawi Fil Lisan Al Arabi by Abu Yusuf Ya'qub ibn Sikkit. 
who died in 244 Hijri. Then you have a number of others, Al-Jarathim, Ibn Qutayba al-Dinwari. This Ibn Qutayba al-Dinwari is a heavyweight when it comes to, again, Arabic lexicography. He has one of the four books which Ibn Khaldun has considered to be the Ummahat, the absolute basis for all works after them. And those four books, uh, Ibn Khaldun says that, I've heard this from our shaykh in, in their Majalis al-Ilm, he says that the usul of this science, the fundamental books of this science, they are four. There are four books and that is Al-Adab Al-Kuttab Ibn Qutayba. I read the introduction to this book. It's an amazing book. Essentially, it's a book on uh, usage. You know, like today you have the Oxford uh, Dictionary of Usage. Don't use this term, you know, where there's two similar terms where people generally misunderstand, right? Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the usage of a particular term and confuse it with another. It's a clarification of all of that. But you should read his introduction. He says, the reason I wrote this is I saw people who are in the courts of the kings. They're writing books. They're, ex you know, they're given expositions of hadith and so on. And I, yet I see them making deadly critical mistakes. And he just goes on to expose them and says they make this kind of a mistake. And he is really, really lamenting the situation. And then he produces this massive book, which is considered a, uh, you know, one of the basic books that everybody is then, uh, is then in need of afterwards. That's the first book, Ibn Qutayba, his Adab al-Kuttab, which means the etiquette of the scribe how you should write. Then he has, then there's Al-Mubarrad's Kitab Al-Kamil. Al-Kamil of uh, Al-Mubarrad. That's another uh, one of the great books. Another one is Kitab Al-Bayani wa Tabyeen of Jahid. Jahid was a Mu'tazili in Aqeedah. When it came to lexicography, just like uh, Zamakhshari, who was also Mu'tazili, but when it comes to language, and thus his, uh, his, uh, his Asasul Balagha is an amazing book as well. So that's the third one. Then the fourth one is Kitab al-Nawadir of Lib uh, Ibn, Ab uh, Ibn Abi al-Qali. So these are the four Ummahat books. However, when you look at a full-fledged dictionary, you have one, uh, you have one with the name of Lugha. Jamharatul Lugha. This is one of our earliest dictionaries that we have, and it's available today. He, uh, the, the person who wrote it was Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn al Hassan ibn Durayd al Azdi. He died in 321 Hijri. That's the same year that Imam Tahawi passed away. Actually, no, Imam uh, Ash'ari passed away. Imam Tahawi passed away 328. Then you have another famous one, which some of you may have come across. If you look in uh, today's dictionaries like Lisanul Arab or Tajul Arus, etc., not Hanzwa, right? But uh, because Hanzwa is a translation uh, uh, and a, a, not a translation, but it's a, it's, a, it's a modern book that was translated out of German. As Siha, which is Tajul Lugha wa Sihahul Arabiya. This is by Abu Nasr Ismail ibn Hamad al Jauhari al Farabi, who died in 393 Hijri. This is, these are early books. Only after seeing these books did the Jews even decide, the Hebrews even decided to uh, develop their own, uh, their, their own, uh, their own lexicons and so on. They, 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 they still have to resort to the Arabic ones because it's kind of from the similar Semitic roots and so on. It's very interesting. So we have a living language with the meanings of each word from the earliest time. Because, you know, the, the question is that, okay, you've got a Quran here. Now somebody comes today and says that this is the meaning that I impose on this Quran. Now we can easily dispel that by, by, uh, by confirming it with the, earliest, with the earliest lexicographers to see what did they say. What did the hadith say? So we have a living tradition which is enduring until today. So that's in terms of its meaning and the language. Now let's move on to the second point. The second point is its style of composition. 
the effective way that the words have been brought together, the sound that they make. We don't have the time to have been given literally a very short time. But the sound that the words make. For example, لا أقسم بيوم القيامة ولا أقسم بالنفس اللوامة أيحسب الإنسان أن لن نجمع عظامة بلا قادرين على أن نسوي بنانة بل يريد الإنسان ليفجر أمامه يسأل أيان يوم القيامة and then it changes فإذا بريق البصر وخسف القمر وجمع الشمس والقمر يقول الإنسان يومئذ أين المفر كلا لا وزر إلى ربك يومئذ المستقر so with the changing themes the words change as well. And there's no way it could be arbitrary or incidental. It is definitely, it is definitely something that has been designed in that way. And that's the words of the divine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why when the Arabs of the time, despite their severe enmity towards Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and this new deen, that, this new religion that he was professing, despite their enmity towards it, when they listened to the Quran, they could not help it but be affected. Despite all of the animosity. So that's why they had to stop each other from going there. I'll just give you one incident in that regard. Umar anhu, his conversion is generally attributed to this incident that he had, that, that, that took place when he went out to kill Rasulullah He was diverted to his sister's house, he beat her up, then he felt sorry. He said, okay, let me read what you have. And thus it was given to him, and, and then he read that. However, Ibn al-Jawzi, the Baghdadi scholar, he, Abu al-Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, he says that no, the seed of it was planted before that. On one occasion, uh, Umar radiallahu anhu was not, uh, was not going, he had some problem in the house. So he decided to spend the night outside. You know, uh, today people go to the masjid, sit down and do tasbih if, the, if their wife threw them out, right? I don't know exactly what happened that day, but he, he went into the haram. And there he went to the Kaaba and he saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa reciting salat, uh, with Quran, Quran in, in Salat, he was re reciting. And as soon as it came to his ears, it took over him. But he couldn't openly listen because that would be totally against his theme, his life. So he went and hid behind the cloth of the Kaaba. Now, what was very interesting is that on that day, the surah that was revealed, uh, the surah that the Prophet ﷺ was reciting was Surah Al Haqqah. Which is the inevitable event. Do you know what the inevitable event is? So, as the Prophet ﷺ is reciting this, Umar is just reveling, it's beautifying his mind, it's taking over his heart, he's listening, he's listening. And then spontaneously, he says, he says to himself, he says to himself, he says, Hada wallahi sha'ir. This man, by Allah, has to be a poet. And the Prophet ﷺ recited the next verse, which is at the end of Surah Al-Haqqah, he says, وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ شَاعِرٍ It is, these are not the words of any poet. So little do you believe. So then Umar anhu thinks to himself, now remember what it is, is that when you see something, we generally, humans, interpret what they see by what they know, what they believe. You're not going to interpret something uh, in an extraordinary, you're going to try to fit it into something you already know. So now he's thinking, Bal huwa kahin. Then he must be a soothsayer. If he's not a poet, then he's a soothsayer. And the next verse, uh, for those who know the surah, is Wala bi qawli kahin, ma tazakkaroon, Neither is it the words of a soothsayer, so little do you think and reflect. 
It is revealed, tanzil, munazzal, it is revealed from the Lord of the worlds. And it says that that's where the iman crept into his heart. The seed was planted. But it takes a while. That's why when you give da'wah, don't expect immediate changes. Our responsibility is to plant the seed and then try to nurture it. Not to try to plant the seed and get it to grow at the same time. This is the biggest mistake that many of us make, especially those who have a bit of shiddah and a bit of harshness about them. They, they want to make it come and make a change straight away. They, they are military. This is called military da'wah. And that's not right. You plant the seed, nurture it, and then let it come up, and hopefully it will come up. If you put the right things, inshallah, with the tawfiq, it will come up. So, Ibn al-Jawzi says that. So this is the mesmerizing effect of the Qur'an and its, its, its composition. Imra al-Qais. Imra al-Qais is the famous Jahili poet, who's one of the best, his mu'allaqa, his poet, a poem, was one of the best of those that were put onto the, the, the Kaaba and chosen and agreed upon. And then he carries on like that. It's a Lamia poem. So every ending of the whole poem is Lam, 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 Li, 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 Li. It's quite interesting. Although it's about, you know, some beloved of his and so on and, and fighting and war and so on like that. And, and so on and so forth. So now, uh, after the Prophet ﷺ came and the Qur'an was revealed, and people began to listen to this amazing nazam of the Qur'an, and the beautiful composition, slowly, slowly they realized that this is something else. So slowly, slowly, although many of those original poets had died and left, their inheritors, they began to take off those poems. Because now something else had just come to surpass it. One was remaining up there. That was Imra al-Qais's poem. It remained up there. His sister, who was his inheritor, refused to take it down. She reckoned that there was nothing yet as comparable to it that had come to force her to take it down. Then, when she heard the verse, وَقِيلَ يَا أَرْضُ بَلَعِي مَاءَكِ وَيَا سَمَاءُ أَقْلِعِي وَغِيضَ الْمَاءُ وَقُضِيَ الْأَمْرُ وَاسْتَوَتْ عَلَى الْجُودِي وَاسْتَوَتْ عَلَى الْجُودِي وَقِيلَ بُعْدًا لِلْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ Which is speaking about Nuh At the end, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the ending of the flood. And he says to the earth, وَقِيلَ يَا أَرْضُ بْلَعِي When I translate it into English, it sounds so simple. It sounds simplistic in fact. يَا, يا أَرْض O land, O earth, take your water back. Take your water back, O heavens, stop your water from coming down. And then the ship came to a standstill. And the matter was decreed and decided and completed. It doesn't sound nothing in English. But when you read it in Arabic, it says that within these 21 or so letters, this is such an ajib composition that there are about 21 different types of rhetorical, uh, rhetor uh, rhetorical points that have been used here to beautify and make this word so effective. When she heard this, she went and she took her poem, her brother's poem down as well. These are the same words that influenced somebody else. There was another great Persian who, who again uh, wanted to try to take the challenge of the Quran to compose something. So what he did was for an entire year he was trying to compose something. Then one day as he was going past uh, a house, he heard a child reading inside the same verse. And when those words hit his ear, he decided to just go back and tear everything up. And he said, this is definitely in هَذَا إِلَّا قَوْلُ الْبَشَرِ This is definitely not the words of any human. This is inimitable. This is a mu'jizah. So when you ask, what's a mu'jizah? How is it a miracle? It's an enduring miracle because it will continue 
to continue to, to challenge people. And that is why there are people, and you hear the, you know, even recently there was in the Telegraph a, a recent article about number of converts. One of them says, I was a racist. I used to follow the BNP, etc., etc. I started reading the Quran and I saw it to be totally different. When you start reading the Quran, it goes beyond all biases because it talks to the heart. It pulls the cords to the heart. It speaks about such universals that apply to every human being. And that's why one can but, you know, one has to be affected by it. That's, that's, that's the way it is. If you look at the Quran, it's constantly asking you to think. That's why many of us, the majority of non-speaking Arabs and even those Arabs who don't think, they unfortunately are the great lost. Despite that, the fact that, mashallah, they have the beauty of Islam and the, 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 the bounty of Islam, if they don't know Arabic, if people are convinced about Islam by reading a translation of the Quran, then can you imagine if they were to understand the Arabic and to learn it directly from there? So I would say that, yes, it may be difficult, but I would keep on to try to get to that goal of, inshallah, understanding the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly in the medium that he revealed it in. So that's the point of the Quran. It gets to the core of the heart. It pulls, it pulls, it challenges, it makes you think. It says, Hal mudakir. Is there somebody to think, to go to the to, to, to understand, to reflect? Now let's move on to the, the next point. Its script is special. We're speaking about the Uthmani Khat, the, the, the way the Quran is written. Now, if any of you have a Quran on you, what, or when you go check how just Surah Al-Fatiha is written. Like for example, let's just take the word ula'ika. The word ula'ika is written with an alif and then a waw. Hamza and then a waw. Now that waw is a silent waw. So you have silent letters in Arabic and there's a reason for them. Those who understand ilm uh, rusum they will understand the reasons behind these things. I'll just give you one example. When you have the first, in Surah Al-Fatiha, you have Maliki Yawmiddin. As we read it in our qira'ah of Hafs and Asim, we read it Maliki Yawmiddin. However, if you look at the words, they're not written as Meme Alif Lam Kaf. They're actually written as Meme Lam Kaf. And the reason why it's written as Meme Lam Kaf is because one of the most beautiful things about Arabic, why it makes it so succinct and so powerful, that in a few words you can say so much, and in a few words you can write so much and give so many meanings, is because unlike English and many other languages, the vowels are not letters. There's no A, E, I, O, U, big A, I, O, U, you know, you don't have, it doesn't take up a letter space. Our vowels in Arabic are literally ashkal. They're just, they're just lines. Your fatha, kasra, dhamma, and your sukoon. And your double fatha, and your double, you know, and your, and your double, you know, your double cons consonants, and so on and so forth. That takes a three-letter word, and rather make it five, it keeps it at three. That's why it is so succinct, so pithy, so particular, so efficient. Streamlined language. Beautiful. So the script is special. When I say Maliki Yawmiddin, the reason why Uthman anhu had it written like that, and the ulama, uh, the, the ummah has generally agreed to keep the script in the same way. So today if you want to produce a new Quran, you know, you have to keep the same script because it allows for all seven qira'ah to be recited from it. So four of the seven imams that read Maliki Yawmiddin, they can read, and the minority, which is us, the three Imams who read Maliki, we can also read it by putting a standing fatha, putting a small alif on top. So it becomes Maliki, otherwise just Maliki Yawmiddin. And many of the other words as well are like that. The way they read it, Salatun Salawatun. The reason why Salatun is written with a wow in traditional writing. 
right? Sad, Lam, Waw, Ta. The Waw is silent, but it's not. It's silent for us because we don't read it. But those who read it plural, then it's not silent for them. It comes into action. It's quite an amazing science just to understand that. And one day maybe, inshallah, you'll have the tawfiq to read that as well. So it provides a lot of, Arabic provides a lot of flexibility by which it's able to provide that kind of effect that it does. It's almost as if every aspect of it was designed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ready for the Quran to be revealed in that language. Because the, the Arabic language was not formulated at the time the Quran was revealed. It was formulated way before that. And subhanAllah, why they were chosen over anybody else is because they considered themselves to be very articulate. And they considered all the ajam to be non-articulate. So you had da'wah is given through the mouth most of the time. So Allah chose these people who had a lot of endurance because of living in the desert. And they had a language in which they were really proud of. And they took a lot of pride in it. And they were very articulate. And that's why they were able to be so effective da'is wherever they went. And that's the most amazing things. All of these things require a lot more study for us to really understand it. Let's move on quickly to the last few points. The fourth point is the pronunciation, the intonation, the way we read it. And again, this is the same thing. Yes, we have the Gujarati reading and the Bangladeshi reading and the Somali reading. And we're going to have these types of the Egyptian reading. You know, there's lots of types of Egyptian reading, by the way. Qarib uh, Abdul Basit and uh, Manshawi and Hindawi. They don't represent how everybody reads in Egypt, by the way. You know, just, just to let you know. It'd be very surprising if you heard some of the way they read. So, however, the way that the Quran was read then... 1400 years ago, it still exists today because of our Isnad system. This is the one subject, the one science that you cannot learn from a book. You can learn the rules, but you can't learn the ways of articulation. As to where the points of articulation, the makharij, where it comes from, how it's recited. And one hadith is really important in this regard. The Prophet ﷺ said, Iqra'ul Qur'ana biluhun al-Arab. Iqra'ul Qur'ana biluhun al-Arab. Recite the Qur'an in the intonations of the Arabs. So don't come with a Pakistani reading. Don't come, you know, with some other kind of reading from, you know, from some other language because that just won't cut it. That won't be right. That's why you're given ijazat. For example, I have an ijazah in qira'ah that goes back to Rasulullah through, uh, through 30 people in between. A chain of 30 people. So this is what you have. You have chains even in qira'ah. Right, some of you may have that, but that's what it is, to focus on trying to get it to be read. So the, the, the miracle of reciting the Qur'an is still the same. That's a miracle on its own, the pronunciation of it as well. Now, to move on, preservation. And this is something that there's no need to expound on really, because the preservation we know, that the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, uh, has facilitated the preservation of the Qur'an, that the preservation of it becomes a miracle. Another aspect of this miracle. So what you have is Allah says, وَلَقَدْ يَسْتَرْنَ الْقُرْآنَ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْ مِنْ مُدَّكِرِ He claims, he, he, he announces this himself, that look, it's going to be easy, we've made it easy. Is there anybody to take it on? Is there anybody to record it and to take it and reflect on it? Allah says, وَإِنَّا لَهُ لَحَافِظُونَ We're going to preserve this, unlike with the other books where we didn't make this promise, because it was part of the grand scheme of things. But this one, we promise it will endure until the day of judgment. Now, you have... Uh, in the time of Harun al-Rashid, we're speaking about uh, 2nd century. Harun al-Rashid is a great Khalif. Suddenly this father comes in with a very small child. 
like an infant, nearly look like just older than an infant. You know, sometimes they look very young, sometimes they look, uh, they look a bit older. This one looked very young, and the, the father said to him, can you, can you read for me? He's a Hafiz of the Quran, he knows the whole Quran. Right? So Harun Rashid said, okay, let's test him. So the father says to him, read. Now you can understand from his answer how old this kid was. He said to him, only if you give me some sweets. Sweet meaning sukkar, some kind of crude sweets that they used to They didn't have, you know, the wrapped sweets and, you know, in those days. But if you give me a sweet, I'll read. If you give me something sweet, I'll read. He said, okay, I'll give you something. He tested him from three or four places and he knew every place with, you know, he was playing around in his reading. Not a problem. Now, this is not something new to us because we have this today as well. This is another miracle. My own teacher, I know his children, at least two of them finished the Quran at the age of five and a half to six. And I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. This is not third hand or second hand. The, his daughter, who's much older now, she was my classmate when she was that old. My, he put her to study under our teacher. This is Mufti Shabir Sahib of, uh, of Darlum Berry. His, his, um, all of his children are Hafiz of the Quran. And most, a lot of them finished when they were five and a half, six and seven years old. And that's not a joke. Then what you have, in fact, his wife became a Hafiz after they got married. So nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. This is a, it's a miracle for those with a Himmah to go after. You're only shortchanging yourself if you think you can't do it. Right? If you can memorize football scores and know this, that and the other, then you can do this. People take three years to do the knowledge, to just become a London cab driver. Three years to do hivs of the knowledge. They, they even call it the knowledge because it is so big. I tell the guy, there's one guy I knew he was doing, I said, man, you need to memorize the Quran. It'll be easier. So, then you have people who've memorized in small amounts of time. Again, that, I consider that it's not going to happen to everybody, but it's a miracle on its own. Uh, the great Sheikh of India, Qasim, Molna Qasim Nanotwi, he, he was only about 40 something when he died, so he had a very short life. On one occasion, he was on his way to Hajj. In those days, they used to go for Hajj from the Indian subcontinent uh, by, by ship. So it took a few months. Ramadan was coming. They had left before Ramadan to make it there for the Hajj. When it, became, uh, when it was coming to Ramadan, there was this discussion, who's going to lead us in Taraweeh prayer? No Hufar. He felt really bad. He says, I'm a scholar and I'm not a Hafiz of the Quran. As soon as Ramadan began, he used to learn one juz a day and do Taraweeh in the evening. And in 30 days, he was done. That's amazing. That is amazing. But there's even more amazing things. There's another scholar of the older time, of the earlier times. He was from the Banu. Uh, he was from the Kalbi tribe, and he was sitting in a gathering in which, uh, in which it was uh, they were talking about the different scholars there, and saying this guy is a big alim, this guy is a hafiz of the Quran, but not an alim. This is an expert in this. When it came to him, they said he's a big scholar, but he's not a hafiz of the Quran. That hurt him. That hurt. So he went and he memorized the Quran in three days. Now look, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the secret there. Right? When you say he memorized the Quran in three days, this is not like some kid who's never seen the Quran, right? Only read it once through and he's going to memorize it in three days. We're not talking about it. We're talking about somebody who probably knew some surahs. 
I'm, I'm thinking. I, I hope I'm not underestimating him. Right? But this is what I think. As an alim, you're, you know, you're going to learn things, you're going to know verses, you've read Quran, etc. So you're familiar with it. My mother was not a hafiz of the Quran, but she'd read it so much that literally she would take my mistakes while I was reading. She'd be in the kitchen cooking and she would be taking my mistakes sitting around. I'm reading with the Quran and I'm trying to learn. I'm making a mistake. She's taking my mistakes out. Because she just read it so many times. Right? So there are people like that. They're just not formal huffaz of the Quran. They're informal huffaz. And you know the other great miracle of this thing? Is that the majority of the huffaz of the Quran are non-Arabs. Probably, probably. That's, a, that's not an exhaustive uh, study claim that I'm making, but I think so. I'll tell you why. From my experience in studying in the Middle East elsewhere, in the Middle East has less Hufaz than your India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or any single of those countries. In Syria, there are, you don't get many Hufaz, neither do you get them in Palestine, as many as proportion as you know the interest that we have. Everybody has to become a harvest of the Quran, and the, right? It's not like that. The only other places where it's like that is in Morocco and Algeria and those places. That's where it happens. There they focus on memorization. So there it's like the subcontinent. But when it comes to the Middle East, it's not like that. Maybe even in Saudi, it's not like that. Wallahu a'lam. So we have a huge amount of people at different ages memorizing. Here, sitting here, I'm sure there are many Hufaz of the Quran that are just sitting here. If this is not a miracle, then what is it? So in every aspect of this, it's a miracle. And finally, I'm just going to speak about one more thing, which is the, revel uh, the, the revelations of the Quran. And again, this is probably something that's always discussed, scientific revelations, this, that, and the Quran, the science, and so on. So I don't want to go into it uh, into too much depth, but just one point that really strikes me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, uh, speaking about Pharaoh, uh, uh, and when the, uh, when the sea had opened up, when the river, when the, when the Bani Israel crossed over, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Pharaoh, he says, Today I'm going to give you respite with your body so that you become a sign for the people after you. Now this was 1400 years ago, mankind learned this from the Quran. That Allah is claiming that I'm going to give you respite. I wonder what the tafsir, the ulama were doing then. As to what that meant. There must be some kind of respite. No mummy had been dis discovered until then. When did Howard Carter discover the mummies? He discussed, uh, discovered it about 150 years ago. In the 18th, you know, 18 something. So until then, the Muslims still believed that verse. But come the 18th century or 19th century. And maybe it's our level of Iman that is not strong enough. So we need those kind of revelations to support our Iman. These mummies are discovered. And subhanallah, you've got Ramses or Medemta, whoever it is, whichever it was, the one at the time, Musa alayhi salam, he's there now, the, the Egyptians are making money from him. They are, because they are, they're making money from him and from so many other things. Because everything from a needle, everything from a needle to his chariot is there in a five floor museum and so many more artifacts that they don't even have on display. And the Egyptians, it brings them revenue. And you, uh, at the time I went, I had to pay 40 Egyptian pounds to get into the museum as the ticket. And then on the second or third floor, as some of you may have been, know that there's another room where you have to pay 90 Egyptian pounds, more than double the price. It was probably different now, but that was then, about six, seven years ago, to go and see the mummies. There's about eight or nine mummies there. 
And I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, what a Quran. What did Allah say? He says, I'm going to give you respite. And he gave him such a respite that not only did he give him respite, but he gave his chariot respite. And he had everything of his preserved down to the needle and mirror. And that is 4,000 years ago. We're talking about something from 4,000 years ago. That, that is what we're speaking about. That's the power of the Quran. And there are many other miracles. So when the Prophet ﷺ says that the, the, what I was given as a sign is a revelation. That is an enduring, enduring miracle. That was not based on a particular time and temporary that had to be witnessed with the eyes only. But this, the Quran, is something that has to be reflected with the basira, with the inner sight, with the inner understanding. And as people continue to do this, and they continue to be beautified with this, and they enter the faith, and they join the ummah of Rasulullah this will increase. And especially when Isa salam comes, when he clarifies, when he comes and he, for his mission in the world, then everybody will become a Muslim. But one thing that has to happen, if the Prophet has said that I hope to be with the largest following on the Day of Judgment, I guarantee you it's going to happen. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has never let down his Prophet. And I don't expect him to do that in this regard. So we have our faith that this is going to happen. Do we want to be part of it? Then we need to become da'is. And if we don't want to be part of it, it's still going to happen. But why not take part in the investment? It's an easy investment. Just go and plant seeds. Just plant seeds. The problem with us, we are hasty. We want to give da'wah and we want a response. You talk to a neighbor or a colleague. They don't give us a response. We think we failed. You haven't failed. Allah will keep all of these things recorded. You have to remember that. We just give as much da'wah as possible. Not only when you're out on three days or 40 days. We need to be da'is all the time. That's just training. We need to be da'is everywhere. Slip, slip. You just talk, talk, talk. Action, action, action. Example, example, example. And Allah will record all of this. Allah will record every single instance when we will forget. The day that that person becomes a believer and you don't even know it anymore, your investment is part of that already. Even though you don't know, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. And that's what I say that the Quran is a living miracle. And hopefully I've been able to explain that today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us part of this living miracle in every aspect of it. May Allah put it into our hearts and give us a true understanding of it. And we haven't even spoken about tafsir and all that, all the rest of it. But that's something. There are many, many more things that will open up. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq. Wa akhiru da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.